strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please have a seat. As you may have guessed, the gentleman standing next to me here is my valet Wilkinson. Pleased to meet you. He assists in our little show by reading any directly quoted material we use from the books we pull in, in the library here. It's his voice, you know. It's a, quite a refined instrument, despite his lack of any formal training. Thank you, sir. No training other than this, what I suppose one might call on-the-job training, doing these shows. And the saltwater gargle you suggested. I suppose that would be part of my regimen. 30 seconds every morning? Yes, sir. Well, saltwater is particularly appropriate with our theme, our nautical theme. I suppose the ocean's always been an obsession of mine. I can't imagine not living near the water. Even being 20 minutes away like we are sometimes makes me nervous. I didn't know that, sir. <laughs> really? After all those trips down to the beach? Well, I believe we've been twice. It was 2002 or maybe 2001. I do remember it was twice in one year. You know, when the sea calls, well, dry land just doesn't feel like home anymore. I don't recall us going near the water. It was all about finding those particular eels you wanted for dinner. Bay eel? Both times. I went to the fish market and you decided to stay in the car and listen to sea shanties. I can't stand the smell of fish markets. I don't know anyone who can. You didn't even try a bite once I prepared it. No, that would have been superfluous. Uh, it was more the experience. The salt air, the rumble of the waves. And sea shanties? Yes. Quite an outstanding collection. Something I obtained through the Scottish Maritime Institute. The eel was quite good. Well, we'll have to do that again in a few years. Or perhaps I could just have you run the errand. In any case, enough of this. Uh, we do have a show to do, so let's get started. Episode 9, Dreadful Ships. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Reidenauer. Our topic, as you'll deduce from our show listings, is the intertwining of folklore with the horror genre, sometimes including a bit of dark history. Uh, I started this all as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm researching for a new book along similar lines. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters who help keep this show on the air. I'll have more on how you can support the show and connect via social media at the end of the episode. Something I almost put in the last episode about rats, as it seems similar to our story about the wicked Bishop Hatto who was pursued into the Mouse Tower, was a story written 
1937 by the French author Georges Toudouze. Uh, it's best known uh, from a classic 1958 radio dramatization for the show Suspense. Three Skeleton Key, starring Vincent Price. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. It tells the tale of three men on a remote island trapped in a lighthouse, surrounded by... Well, hundreds, no, thousands, no, me... I don't know, an inestimable number of tremendous rats. As the story nears its climax... They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the planks, fascinated, and even as I did, it began to give way. Oh, I won't spoil the story, which you can find linked on the Bone and Sickle website. But uh, what's of interest here is how these rats have arrived on the island, namely aboard an abandoned freighter which crashes on shore during a storm. Horror fans may recall a similar scene from Werner Herzog's uh, 1979 adaptation of Dracula, that is uh, Nosferatu actually, in which an unmanned ship drifts into port with its cargo of plague-infested rats. The crew of the ship, of course, has been dispatched by the vampire en route, and only the captain is left lashed to the wheel. Of course, this is only one of many horror and science fiction movies to have made use of this motif of the uh, derelict ship, often called a ghost ship, as in the 2002 horror film of the same name. I told you guys earlier there was something seriously wrong with this boat. Haunted, possessed, whatever you want to call it. I... What are we going to do? We have got to get off this boat now. Bon voyage. Perhaps the best-known historical ghost ship would be the Mary Celeste discovered adrift off the Azores Islands in 1872. Why the still seaworthy ship was abandoned is still a matter of debate, though the mystery of the case has been somewhat exaggerated in the popular imagination thanks to the 1884 short story by Arthur Conan Doyle, Habakkuk Jeffson's Statement, a fictionalized first-person account of the ship's discovery. And uh, incidentally, it's from this story that we have inherited the misnomer Marie Celeste that's today more commonly used in the ship's actual name, Mary Celeste. More interesting cases, also quite possibly, uh, somewhat fictionalized at least, would be accounts like that of the French frigate Duc de Danzig, discovered in 1812, drenched in blood and littered with decaying corpses of its crew, many of which were reported to have been hacked and mutilated with some crucified to her masts. Uh, then there was the Russian freighter Ivan Vasil, rumored to have picked up a malevolent spirit in Zanzibar responsible for suicides of its entire 11-member crew. Polar expeditions are especially rich in ghost ship incidents. In the late 1700s, the English trading ship the Octavius was reported drifting through pack ice off Greenland's coast for 13 years. In 1840, the English schooner Jenny was discovered after 17 years adrift with its seven-member crew frozen and perfectly preserved. The captain, supposedly seated in his cabin, pointing a frozen finger toward God knows what.
One of the most gruesomely delightful accounts of a ghost ship comes from Edgar Allan Poe's only full-length novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, written in 1838. In it, the hero's ship has just been through a storm and lost its provisions. Uh, they sight a Dutch brig, believing at first that one of the crewmen aboard is waving helpfully toward them. Um, but as they draw closer, they realize their mistake. Shall I ever forget the horror of that spectacle? Twenty-five or thirty human bodies lay scattered about between the counter and the galley in the last and most loathsome state of putrefaction. We saw a tall, stout figure still leaning on the bulwark and still nodding his head to and fro, but his face was now turned from us so that we could not behold it. On his back, from which a portion of the shirt had been torn, leaving it bare, there sat a huge seagull busily gorging itself with the horrible flesh. Its bill and talons deep buried, and its white plumage splattered all over with blood. As the brig moved further round so as to bring us close in view, the bird, with much apparent difficulty, drew out its crimsoned head, and after eyeing us for a moment as if stupefied, arose lazily from the body upon which it had been feasting, and flying directly above our deck, hovered there for a while with a portion of clotted and liver-like substance in its beak. The horrid morsel dropped at length with a sullen splash immediately at the feet of Parker. The body from which it had been taken, resting as it did upon the rope, had been easily swayed to and fro by the exertions of the carnivorous bird, and it was this motion which had at first impressed us with the belief of its being alive. As the gull relieved it of its weight, it swung round and fell partially over, so that the face was fully discovered. The eyes were gone and the whole flesh around the mouth, leaving the teeth utterly naked. This, then, was the smile which had cheered us on to hope. Flying Dutchman, a legendary ghost ship cursed to eternally roam the seas, is probably best known as the supernatural ship from the Pirates of the Caribbean films or from the opera by Richard Wagner. But the legend goes back to at least the 1700s, with the first written account appearing in 1790. There are different versions of the legend, but typically the Flying Dutchman is a ship piloted by a godless captain attempting to round the Cape of Good Hope during a head gale. Uh, begged by his crew to turn back, he simply laughs and takes another drag on his pipe and swig on his beer, but as the storm's fury increases, he realizes that even he cannot push through and curses God. A curse that fates him to forever sail the seas without reaching port. Sometimes the curse also includes little extras. He may be doomed, for instance, to only have gall to drink and red-hot iron to eat. Often the captain may attempt to hail other vessels in an effort to send letters to those at home. If the barrel of letters is retrieved by the hailed ship, they will prove to be addressed to those long dead, and the ship bearing these letters will also suffer some sort of misfortune.
sightings are plentifully documented in ship's logs and elsewhere, such as this one from the diary kept by two sons of Edward, Prince of Wales, during their 1881 trip aboard the Vacant. At 4 a.m. the Flying Dutchman crossed our bows, a strange red light as of a phantom ship all aglow, in the midst of which the masts, spars, and sails of a brig 200 yards distant stood out in strong relief as she came up. The lookout man on the forecastle reported her as close on the port bow, where also the officer of the watch from the bridge clearly saw her, as did the quarter-deck midshipman, who was sent forward at once to the forecastle. But on arriving there, no vestige, nor any sign whatever of any material ship was to be seen. Later, Prince George was to write that one of the seamen reporting the phenomenon fell that day from the foremast and died and that the ship's commander succumbed to a fatal illness shortly after reaching port. Similar misfortunes are not scarce. In 1881, a Swedish merchantman rounding the Cape during a storm encountered a weird glow on the horizon. The man sent up the mast to investigate was quickly hurled to the deck, dying, it said, with the words, Fly, fly, Dutchman, Dutchman, on his lips. A second sailor sent up, then described a brilliant red flame in the middle of which there was an ancient vessel. Two days away from port, it's reported that the captain died of a heart attack while another sailor who had glimpsed the infernal ship through a portal was found dead in his bunk. The cause of death reported extreme fear. The Scottish whaling steamer, the Orkney Bell, passed the Dutchman in 1911, close enough, it's said, to read the name on its bow. And it's also said that, a few years later, this ship became the very first British ship to be sunk in the Great War. And in 1943, the Australian naval escort boat HMAS Beresford, sailing toward the Cape of Good Hope, transmitted a chilling two-word message. Flying Dutchman. After which, no trace of the ship or its 34-member crew was ever found. A favorite explanation for stories in which the ghost ship is said to luminesce is the phenomenon of St. Elmo's Fire. It's a sort of flickering, hissing, blue-violet corona, which under certain circumstances can appear on various prominences such as spires, lightning rods, the masts of ships in our case, uh, airplanes also, and even on the horns of cattle on the open plain. It's a form of plasma like that in fluorescent lights or various plasma devices. Nikola Tesla in 1899 noted its presence while testing his coils, describing how it lit upon the wings of butterflies circling the coil, which must have been quite lovely. On ships, it alights on the tops of masts, like a flame atop a candle, giving a name to the 119th chapter of Moby Dick. The Candles. In which Ahab takes the phenomenon as a good omen of the whale's proximity. So, it's as often as not a 
good sign, uh, one which in more devout times was sometimes called corpus sant, from uh, corpus sancti, or the holy body of, of St. Elmo in this case, who was said to have called down uh, supernatural fire to destroy pagan idols, uh, which is one of the explanations given for his connection to the phenomenon. It's been especially called upon to explain visions of apparently burning ships, ghost ships like the Eliza Battle, a burning paddle steamer that appears on Alabama's Tom Bigby River, or the Chaleur Phantom, a ship sighted since the 1800s on the coast of Bathurst, New Brunswick. Often ghost ships seem to be caught reenacting their final moments, and these apparitions may offer very specific clues as to how their crews expired, uh, as in this story from uh, a 17th century manuscript quoted in a book by folklorist uh, Sabine Baring Gould. It's uh, related by a sailor on his way from Uruguay to Spain. He'd seen a black frigate sail by so close that he could see the figurehead, which represented a skeleton with a spear in his right hand. He also saw the crew on deck, which resembled the figurehead, only that skin was drawn over their bones. Their eyes were sunk deep in the sockets and had in them a stare like that of dead bodies. Nevertheless, they handled the cordage and managed the sail, which later was so thin as to be like cobwebs, and the stars could be dimly seen through them. The only word he heard as the mysterious bark glided by was water, 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 water. Off the shores of Harpswell, Maine, a frigate that went down in 1815 is said to periodically reappear at the precise point it foundered on the rocks. It's become known as the Dead Ship of Harpswell, the title of an 1866 poem by John Greenleaf Whittier, in which he describes how its appearance portends death for someone in the community. And men shall sigh and women weep, whose dear ones pale and pine, and sadly over sunset seas await the ghostly sign. They know not that its sails are filled by pity's tender breath nor see the angel at the helm who steers the ship of death. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow treated the subject of nautical apparitions in his 1863 poem, The Musician's Tale, The Ballad of the Carmelhan. In this story, an arrogant sea captain swears that if he were to ever meet the ghost ship Carmelhan, he will run her down. Longfellow also invokes the old superstition of sailors on the North and Baltic seas that a gnome-like being known as the Klobotaman attends each ship at sea, a generally helpful creature, but one not to be crossed. The name comes from the German Klobasten, which means to rumble, as the Klobotaman only makes himself known through the sounds he makes. Actually seeing the gnome spells death, as the captain in this poem realizes after his ship, the Valdemar, navigating in a storm near the dangerous rocks known as the Chimneys Three, encounters the Carmelhan. 
running directly through the Phantom ship as promised. Again the lightning flashed. Again they saw the Carmelhan. Whole as before and whole and spar, but now on board of the Voldemar stood the Clubbarman. Then suddenly there came a shock, and louder than wind or sea. A cry burst from the crew on deck as she dashed and crashed, a hopeless wreck upon the chimneys three. Now, a quick musical interlude to look at a rather different kind of dreadful ship. One that turns out to be piloted by a diabolically jealous ex-lover or perhaps the devil himself. The story is told in an ancient ballad best known as The House Carpenter, uh, sometimes also called The Demon Lover. Uh, but the title of one of its oldest sources, a 17th century broadsheet from England's West Country describes it best. Title? A warning for married women, being an example of Mrs. Jane Reynolds, a West Country woman born near Plymouth, who having plighted her troth to a seaman, was afterwards married to a carpenter, and at last carried away by a spirit, the manner in which shall be presently recited. So this jealous ex returns to woo back his lover, boasting that he will whisk her away to Italy on one of his many ships. Oh, I have seven ships upon the sea, seven ships upon the land, four hundred and fifty bold sailor men to be at your command. By the way, we are hearing uh, Kentucky folk singer Gene Ritchie, who we heard in our Cuckoo episode. Uh, I'll link her version and other versions of the song on the website. Anyway, uh, the woman leaves her husband and her three babies, only to find one ship, a single ship, crewed by her lover alone. As she begins to regret her decision, she spies three bright hills on the horizon. What hills are those, she asks. Those are the hills of heaven she learns. And what of those dark hills she sees beneath the waves? Oh, those be the hills of hell, my dear, where we must surely go. In some versions, the wicked sailor manifests more diabolical powers. He took her up to the topmast high to see what she could see. He sunk the ship in a flash of fire to the bottom of the sea. Now, from underwater hellfires to the frozen wastes of the polar regions, in particular, the ship of the undead in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's 1789 poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Now, 
If you know this poem at all, it's likely from some half-forgotten English lit class or from the albatross around the neck idiom or the water, water everywhere line. But in light of our interest in Gothic literature, it's worth knowing Coleridge a bit better. Coleridge is one of the early English romantics and would not have identified himself as a Gothic writer as Gothic was regarded as a rather tawdry stepchild of the Romantic movement, but he was a big influence on Edgar Allan Poe and otherwise boasts some pretty sterling Gothic credentials. Uh, throughout his life, he struggled against depression and anxiety, which he treated with laudanum, uh, leading to a lifelong opium addiction, asserting that it was opium dreams that inspired one of his best-known works, the exotic visions of the poem Kubla Khan. At one of his other greatest works, the poem Christabel plays with ideas of demonic or lesbian seduction, probably both, and the rhyme of the ancient mariner was an inspiration to Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, which I'll get to in a moment. The poem's often been compared to the Flying Dutchman legend as it tells the tale of a man condemned to wander the seas. Uh, to summarize as quickly as possible, the poem begins with a vivid description of the ship escaping a land of mist and snow, where an albatross appears. The captain, for reasons never actually made clear, kills the bird, one believed by sailors everywhere to be a omen of good fortune, so they punish him by hanging the albatross from his neck. The ship loses its wind, and the crew is without water. The captain looks out upon the ocean, which has taken on a terrible hallucinatory aspect. The very deep did rot, O Christ, that ever this should be. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. About, about, in reel and rout, the death fires danced at night. The water, like a witch's oils, burnt green and blue and white. It is then a ghost ship makes its appearance, and everyone on the Mariner ship falls dead. Uh, we see that the phantom vessel is piloted by the Grim Reaper and a strange female figure. Her lips were red, her looks were free, her locks were yellow as gold, her skin was white as leprosy. The nightmare, life in death was she, who thicks man's blood with cold. The figures play dice to decide the captain's fate, deciding between two grim choices the simple relief of death or an eternal wandering life in death. There is more to the story during which the captain's crew arrives, rather like zombies to pilot the ship, but I won't go into all the rest now. Um, it's suggested that only by telling his story can the mariner escape his fate. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein begins with a framing device rarely seen in film adaptations, letters written by Robert Walton, a captain himself inexorably drawn to explore polar regions. And Walton's even made to quote Coleridge's poem in his letters. The captain recounts picking up Victor Frankenstein stranded 
in the frozen sea. Now, Frankenstein's miserable creation, as some of you will know, has sought out the bitter solitude of the polar regions because, well, because he's that kind of goth. And Victor has followed him there for the story's final confrontation between the two. Uh, the rest of the story could be considered a flashback, actually. Shelley would later admit that the polar framing device she used was an afterthought inspired by public discussion of polar expeditions and the need for England to be the first to find the Northwest Passage through the ice of the Arctic Ocean to the Pacific. She was hardly alone in this 19th century fascination with polar regions. In the imagination of her contemporaries, it occupied much the same place outer space does for us in this century as a region where the fantastic may be played out, also as a place where man confronts nature in its most extreme and cruelest form. Arthur Conan Doyle, Jules Verne, Poe, uh, Charles Dickens, and countless writers of lesser reputations also spun out fantasies set in polar regions. Shelley would also recall as a teen hiding uh, behind a sofa listening to her father's friend Samuel Coleridge read his Ancient Mariner aloud, and its vivid description of the frozen seas were understood as an inspiration for the scenes in Frankenstein. Flying Dutchman and that opera. There are two more elements to his story that solidified somewhat later in the 19th century. One is the naming of the captain as Hendrik van der Deken. Uh, in a few German versions, he's actually named after a real captain, one Bernard Folk, who was famous for the speed of his journeys between the Netherlands and Java, a speed that some speculated was the result of a deal with the devil. The second element uh, is made especially prominent in Richard Wagner's 1843 opera, The Flying Dutchman. And this is the possibility of redemption for the cursed captain, who Wagner, by the way, doesn't name, so I'll just call him the Dutchman. Uh, the version of the tale upon which Wagner based his opera is the uh, 1833 novel by Heinrich Heine, The Memoirs of Mr. Schnappelbewoski. In Heine's retelling, the Dutchman has a chance, given once every seven years only, to find a wife and who is faithful unto death. It is only through this that he can be freed from his curse. Now, Heine's novel was actually satiric, and the salty old captain he describes is not exactly the stuff of marriage, but Wagner took this motif quite seriously, uh, creating the character of Zenta, the daughter of a Norwegian uh, merchant seaman, who feels a fateful love for the Dutchman. But toward the opera's end, Zenta is uh, falsely accused of infidelity, and the furious Dutchman bitterly sets off to sea, leaving Zenta no choice but to fling herself to her death. However, uh, Zenta's final gesture demonstrates that she is indeed faithful unto death, thus 
freeing the Dutchman who ascends with her to heaven. Now, you mightn't expect the Flying Dutchman to bring us all the way back to Dracula, but that is how we're going to close our show. The characters of the Count and the Cursed Sea Captain both do live in a sort of life-in-death state, as Coleridge would say. It's been suggested that the narrator Jonathan Harker's wife, Mina, is uh, somehow similar to Zenta. Not as a redeemer, but as a character bridging the two worlds of the uh, undead and the living. In some adaptations of the Dracula story, this theme is explored with implications of some foreordained timeless connection between the two or even a genuine romantic bond, but it's not so in Stoker's novel. Though the connection is not romantic, Mina is indeed psychically bonded with the Count after he begins to feed on her. Um, no love unto death, but she does exhibit a very clearly stated sympathy for the misery that the Count's eternal life must be. While Stoker may not have intended Mina as a redemptive figure, there are reasons to believe that Wagner's Dutchman might have been influenced by the plight of the uh, undead vampire. While his opera was written 54 years before the publication of Dracula, Wagner was definitely aware of vampire literature, in particular John William Polidori's 1819 novel The Vampire, inspired, like the novel Frankenstein, by uh, the three days that uh, Mary and Percy Shelley spent with Polidori and Lord Byron at the latter's mansion on Lake Geneva. As it turns out, Wagner in 1833 had been commissioned to write supplemental music for Heinrich Marschner's opera Der Vampir, which was based on Polidori's novel. And whether Stoker might have been thinking of the Flying Dutchman when he wrote his vampire novel, well, as some of you may be aware, Stoker worked as a theater manager, and when he took over London's Lyceum Theater in 1878, his first project was the play Vanderdecken, a W.G. Willis theatrical adaptation of the legend. Theatrical impresario and playwright David Belasco even called Stoker in to rewrite uh, parts of the Vanderdecken script. What's more, Stoker studiously planted a reference to a character, one assumed to be Dracula's hero Jonathan Harker, attending Wagner's opera The Flying Dutchman in Munich in his story Dracula's Guest, a chapter discarded from the final novel but later published under that title as a short story. Uh, for more on that, you might want to visit or revisit the very first episode of this program. And so, arriving back full circle like this seems an appropriate place to end this particular episode. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and will continue listening to future episodes. Uh, shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week. Please do like and comment and share the episodes where and whenever you can. Reviews, likes, and shares via social media are uh, very important for those of us who like to see the show keep going. The Incorrigibly Curious can also visit the website I've been mentioning, boneandsickle.com, all one word, the word and spelled out. 
no ampersand. Um, and there you can find uh, notes, uh, images, and video of topics I've mentioned in the podcast. You'll also find links to uh, the social media pages I've mentioned. And there's also a Patreon link where you can donate to support this uh, extremely labor-intensive undertaking. Uh, Patreon members have the choice of various gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast, notes, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, and uh, the show soundscapes you'll hear behind me speaking, and other audio, uh, as well as the signed 8x20 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation. Your donations in any amount uh, help me continue the show as a bi-monthly release. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thank you very much for listening.